all the divine persons are involved in uh, salvation. Now, salvation on one hand is, I think, of course, we kind of break it down theologically and say there's justification, there's sanctification, transformation, and so on. How can somebody who is not the author of life or the person who kind of gave the law, if somebody who is not equal to that law right. then comes and dies, what does it do for me? Mm -hmm. right. It was necessary that somebody who is equal to the law comes and dies. Mm -hmm. Welcome back to Advent Next a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. This week, we are continuing our conversation with Dr. Dennis Kaiser, Assistant Professor of Church History at Andrews University. We will continue to explore the development of the Trinity Doctrine, along with the present controversy surrounding the role of Jesus in his salvation and the nature of his subordination to the Father. Last week, we discussed the history of the Trinity from the fourth century on focusing particularly on the progressive understanding of the nature of Christ within early Adventism. This week, we will discuss the recent debates surrounding the Trinity, how the Trinity became related to the issue of women's ordination, and how the nature of Christ impacts the work of salvation. If you'd like to listen to some of our other podcasts on faith and theology, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, or Apple Podcasts at AdventNext. Or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at the handle at AdventNext. My co-host today is once again Max Aka. You can follow him at Maxwell Cozen. And as always, I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and this is AdventNext. I mean, from my perspective, and, and yeah. some people might disagree, um, but from my perspective, it seems that there have been at least uh, three waves of anti-Tentarianism anti in the Adventist Church since the 1990s. Mm. So on one hand, and so I think there are some reasons for that. Um, in the uh, 1970s, we have uh, like, since 1970s as well as 1980s, there's strong theological liberalism rising of the church. Mm -hmm. And so all kinds of, uh, you could say, pillars are undermined, yeah the sanctuary doctrine or like uh, the inspirational authority of Ellen White and so on. And so that's happening in the academic world, mm -hmm. but in the pew, people get kind of suspicious mm -hmm. of scholars. And uh, once again, the question is, who can we trust? And so there is was a movement or a trend um, rising in the Adventist church where some people uh, kind of left or retired, left church employment and uh, retired and then created their own independent ministries. And uh, the mindset was um, that we call historic Adventism. Mm. So we have to kind of back to the original faith, to the pioneers. Um, and once again, that's a very static, uh, monolithic view of early Adventism. And we don't really see that uh, people grew in the understanding. Some people were at different stages in their growth and so on. And so when we get into the uh, 1990s, um, it's just interesting that so some people, some Adventist scholars pointed out that there are problems with this mindset of historic Adventism. And they said, with this idea, I mean, you basically, uh, like you basically ignore development that happened even in early Adventism. Yeah? Mm. Okay. Because in that sense, James White, Joseph Bates, they, they wouldn't be able to be members today of the church. Yeah? Mm. But um, so if you take that mindset because uh, they were not Trinitarians. At that point, uh, Trinitarianism was not questioned in, the, in these movements. Hmm. But at that point, people who had this mindset of historic Adventism, some of them, they said, oh, so the early Adventists didn't believe in the Trinity? Also, then the Trinity must be wrong. Hmm. And so that's where kind of the, it seems to me, the first wave kind of began. 
But um, the publications that they uh, produced were basically in book form, paper form, yeah. And so it had an impact, but not as strong. Mm. Um, so there are some studies in the late 1990s. Um, the book, um, The Trinity, comes out by Moon and Witten and Reeve. And um, so it seems that this kind of first wave dies down. Then we have a second wave that is in the mid-2000s. And there now, um, the ideas are promoted um, on the internet. Mm. There are different websites and so on, and uh, you can read things there. But just because something is on the internet doesn't mean that everybody knows about it. Right. If you've, I mean, you need to find it, kind of. Yeah? Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not just confined, let's say, to North America or Europe or the Caribbean. Mm. It's now spreading to other continents. Mm. Oh, wow. Now there are further studies, there are articles written, there are conferences, symposia on the topic, and uh, somehow that wave also subsides. We get into the 2010s, and it seems to me that uh, now a third wave kind of begun uh, a couple of years ago, maybe like five, six years ago, and it seems like that it hasn't died down yet. Mm. And um, so now it's basically, um, it's discussed on social media, Facebook, and uh, I don't know if it's also on Twitter, but like um, with social media, it has um, a far higher um, like dissemination. Mm. Okay. Because let's say I have a thousand friends and if I post something, they possibly see it. Uh, their friends may see it. Mm -hmm. And so then it spreads. Another thing is also that we live in a globalized world. Um, there are some uh, people that, let's say, have relatives in, uh, I know, for example, uh, in U former Yugoslavia, like Croatia and uh, Serbia and so on. They have relatives in the US. They have relatives in Canada, in Australia, right. in Germany. Yeah? And so some ideas through these uh, ethnic connections, mm. travel faster. Yeah? And so then ideas pop up in these different places. Mm. So that's one aspect. Um, like you could say like uh, something that drives uh, or makes, makes it possible for ideas to spread. Right. But um, as you know, in the uh, like beginning of the early 2010s, we had uh, the ordination study committee the theology of ordination study committee. And uh, so there are different views on, on the subject, whether women should be ordained or not. So you could say there is not really a connection between that subject and the doctrine of the Trinity. Right. But depending on what arguments you employ um, to, um, like to support your ideas, a connection might be created. Mm. And so no matter where people stand on this subject, um, some people have uh, employed arguments um, to support their ideas that created a connection. So in that sense, uh, some people said, because Jesus is subordinate to the Father um, since eternity, uh, therefore also since uh, the relationship between the Father and the Son is kind of um, kind of representative for the relationship between um, like uh, a man and a woman. Of course, scripture says husband and wife, but and the question is, what is leadership and whatever? But in that sense, <laughs> yeah. they, they kind of make this comparison. And, and the comparison is, to a certain degree, it's there. But, um, of course, there are further questions regarding that. But they said, uh, therefore, um, basically, since Jesus is subordinate to the Father, therefore, also, uh, a wife needs to be subordinate to, to, to men. Yeah? Or a woman needs to be subordinate, subordinate to men. And so now these two topics were kind of linked. Interesting. Mm. Wow. Some people on the ordination study committee, um, they warned people who use these arguments and they said, you need to be very careful because when you use that argument, I mean, regardless of whether you, your view is right or wrong, 
um, not every ammunition is, is, is good. Yeah? And so with this, you're grazing very closely to anti-tentarianism. Mm. Yeah. And so some people actually went the next step and mm. became anti-tentarians. And now these two, pub, uh, two topics are linked. And so people, when you talk about the unity of the divine persons and the equality and uh, that they are, when you use biblically, basically biblical language, when you say that um, Jesus glorifies the Father, the Father glorifies him, the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus, uh, Jesus testifies of the Father, the Father testifies of him, and the Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they are kind of, they are submitting, serving one another, yeah? mm -hmm. because that's a sign of unselfish love. When you say these things, some people, they say, oh, you just say that because you want to support the ordination of women. Wow. Because they link these two topics now. Interesting. And so thereby, then um, the subject of the Trinity receives um, a certain urgency, not for the subject in and of itself, but because of the question of uh, the ordination of women. Wow. And I'm so they, because of that, some people now have become anti-Trinitarians and others have not, but they play down the doctrine of the Trinity because they feel that uh, it's important to uh, kind of in this conflict on ordination to support the uh, those who are against the ordination of women. Wow. wow. And so because of that, as I said, it has a certain urgency, a certain um, dramatic, um, yeah. And even in passing, we were talking yeah. a little bit about, I mean, there does tend to be a little bit of a, an ethos within Adventism of kind of, uh, I want to say, like uh, doing things that are not Catholic. <laughs> and so looking at how Trinity, you know, you were talking to me a little bit about how the Catholic view of the Trinity is actually closer to the view of um, Adventist anti-Trinitarianism. In that, certain respects. In certain yeah. respects. Okay. And I think that that's interesting. I was wondering maybe uh -huh. you can expound on that and how does maybe the official <laughs> Adventist Trinitarian view compare with different denominations like Baptists, Catholics, uh -huh. and all that. So um, when you look at, for example, uh, Roman Catholics, they will say that um, their view of the Trinity or the doctrine of the Trinity is the basis for the entire Roman Catholic theology. And uh, of course, as Adventists, we have been in general throughout our history being quite, you could say, um, um, opposed to the Roman Catholic uh, uh, belief system as well as the, the um, structure of the church, the papacy, and so on. Yeah? And so thereby, sometimes we get the idea that everything that is somehow Catholic or that Catholics believe is thereby tainted and must be wrong. Mm -hmm. Now, when Catholics say that the doctrine of the Trinity is the basis for the entire Catholic theology, then some evidence would say, or oh, therefore, that belief must be wrong. Mm. Of course, the next question for me would be, what do Catholics mean when they say that? Mm. So is it the basic concept of a trinity that is the basis for the entire Roman Catholic theology? Or is it something else? How is it the basis? And so when you look at uh, the understanding of the trinity in the Roman Catholic Church, it's basically what I said before, it's something that is influenced by... Um, by Greek philosophical um, presuppositions, basically that perfection is something that is 100%. It cannot change. Yeah? If it uh, moves beyond that, then it wasn't, uh, or if it changes, then it wasn't perfect. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So, But since God is perfect and he's unchangeable, mm -hmm. that means he cannot be subject to time, space, or emotions. Mm. Mm. Um, and so this, you could say these presuppositions manifest themselves in the Catholic view of the Trinity. 
So therefore, when Jesus is on one hand the begotten Son of God, of course we can talk about what that means yeah, right. biblically, but when Jesus is the begotten Son of God, so he must be begotten um, like uh, biologically by the Father. But of course, uh, that cannot be in time because uh, then he would have an origin. Mm -hmm. So it must be outside of time. So then everything that has is, let's say, connected to a material view or a temporal view of God in heaven cannot be, um, cannot be right. So therefore, when the Bible talks about a heavenly sanctuary, they say, okay, there can't be an actual building in heaven. Yeah? Uh, when it talks about people being there, yeah, they can't be there in their bodies. Mm. So basically, all kinds of ideas when it comes to, let's say, the immortality of the soul uh, starts from this point. Yeah, Because there can only be like this immortal kernel that is in us that can be with God, not something material. Yeah. Um, then also Jesus, when he is with the Father and Son, can't be material. Um, but if there is no sanctuary in heaven, but the Bible talks about the sanctuary, so where is it? Yeah? Mm -hmm. And so then as a result, you have here in time, in space, every church is a sanctuary, mm -hmm. where you have an altar, where you have sacrifices, where you have priests, and so on. Mm -hmm. So like a, almost like a continuation of the Old Testament priesthood. Right. And Jesus in the Mass is sacrificed all the time. Mm -hmm. He's always, like you can always get him from heaven because he's regenerated, the eternal generation of the Son. He's yeah. always regenerated, mm -hmm. and so you can always get him because he's always produced yeah, in timelessness. Yeah? Interesting. And so in that sense, the whole um, Mass is only possible because of that. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Now with an Adventism, we would say, oh, we don't believe that yeah, because we actually believe that in heaven there is a building. There's probably far bigger than what you can imagine because mm -hmm. there are myriads of angels there. Um, but there is a building, there's a sanctuary, there are services. Jesus is the high priest. Yes, we are all priests, a royal priesthood. We kind of uh, join in his service by offering sacrifices of praise, thanksgiving, um, uh, obedience, and so on. Yeah? Um, but Jesus was sacrificed once and for all. He doesn't have to be sacrificed all the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When we die and uh, when we are resurrected, Jesus is coming, then we receive a body and we will be with him in our body. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And so that's, you could say, a material view. Yeah? Although it's not absolutely exclusively material because there are realities that are higher than what we experience here. Yeah? Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, I think um, it's important to understand that it's not the basic concept of the Trinity itself that is the basis for the entire Catholic theology. It's actually something that manifests itself in their belief of the Trinity. Mm. That is the basis for the entire Roman Catholic theology. Mm. And getting back to like the similarity to early Adventism, even though early Adventists were um, rejected ideas of timelessness and spacelessness and so on, when it comes to the relationship between the, uh, the Father and the Son, and questions of origin, it's very close to actually the Nicene Creed or Roman mm. Catholic theology. Mm -hmm. uh, because Avent early Adventists, they would also say that Jesus was begotten by the Father. He emanated from the Father, and therefore he is uh, fully divine and so on. Yeah? Mm. Mm -hmm. But of course, Catholics would say that happened in timelessness, and early Adventists, they would say that happened in time. Yeah? Right. Interesting. Is this all just happening? I mean, the, the language of begottenness can get weird. You even mm -hmm. hear people within the scope of like Islam pointing out issues they have with that, with mm -hmm. like the, 
difference between Trinity and Tawhid. Is that just because we're we're reading the King James Bible and we're reading John 3 a lot? Is that just because we all like John 3 and we see only begotten and monogenes and we don't know what to do with that? Or I think um, a big reason is just that we um, we go to the Bible and we read, we, we kind of use the Bible as a, um, almost like a, not an encyclopedia, but actually like a, a, a book with Proverbs. Right. We can just take a nice proverb, just a text, and uh, and I think, of course, that is true. Was true basically, you could say, since um, not just since the Middle Ages, but um, actually, when you look at the, to kind of go back to the early church fathers, sure, a lot of them wrote uh, commentaries on scripture. Yeah. yeah, and that's even like when you get into the early Middle Ages, where that is true as well. Mm-hmm. Once you get into uh, like the High Middle Ages, you have basically you have like eventually Thomas Aquinas, mm-hmm. and it's all about the ideas. Right. Um. Because the ideas are the real thing, are the res. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And so not the material thing anymore or the stories. Um, when you look at the Protestant reformers, Luther was a biblical theologian. Mm-hmm. So he wrote commentaries. He didn't really leave a systematic theology. Yeah? Right. Um, and I think in that sense, when you look at the Bible and you treat the Bible as a book mm-hmm. that you kind of begin to read and you have the stories, yeah, and you yeah. read the stories, then you see how the story builds. You mm-hmm. also see how let's say, certain terms are defined and then later on they are picked up again. Yeah? Right. But um, in Protestant theology, eventually we moved into this uh, Protestant orthodoxy where we fight with each other right. about theology, about the ideas. The rebirth of scholasticism and And so that. in early, I would say in Adventism, we have, I think, a similar issue because uh, today when we uh, deal with the Sabbath school lesson, often um, we have topics, yeah? Topics in and of itself is not not the problem, mm-hmm. but the question is, do we read texts for their own sake mm-hmm. in their literary context? Right. Or do we just eventually pick and choose? And I think uh, the way how we often do Sabbath school lends itself to a focus on just snippet statements. Right. Yeah. Just sermons, we often do that. Yeah? Right. Mm-hmm. Bible studies, that's what we do. Yeah? And I think uh, today we live in a time where we... A lot of things that we read, we read online, Twitter, yeah. um, Facebook, it's brief snippet statements. Mm-hmm. And I think we lose the ability, even when we do research, we have mm-hmm. databases, we look for keywords, we find something. Right. I think we kind of lose the ability to read um, a longer text and and understand how the line of argument grows. The arc. Yeah. How things are connected and so on. And I think um, that's one one big issue that uh, is behind that as well. Yeah. Yeah. To kind of uh, pick on one of the points that you mentioned. Go for yeah. it. When you look at the Bible, mm-hmm. the term, let's say, begotten son or so, mm-hmm. doesn't just appear in John chapter 3. Sure. It already appears in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting when you look at um, places where the term begotten or you will be my son or so where like these statements appear right it's interesting that uh, begottenness apparently is not primarily connected to a biological connection mm-hmm. but by a spiritual connection mm-hmm. I mean therefore God can also for example when you have um, like uh, also sonship or right. who's the first son and so on who's the firstborn yeah mm-hmm. also that, we, like humanly speaking among ourselves, our common experience is, oh yeah, that's the first one. Like um, the first one in times of chronology. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when you look at Abraham, Genesis chapter 22, God says, now take your son. 
of course, the question is, which one? Because I have, I have two. Yeah, mm-hmm. your only, only son. son. Mm-hmm. It's like, but, but the, yeah. the, the, they are two. Yeah, Ishmael. The one like, that am I nothing? the one <laughs> yeah. the one that you love. Yeah. Mm. And so um, that's kind of one passage. But then you have others with Jacob. Yeah, Jacob mm-hmm. um, as an individual becomes Israel, mm-hmm. but then his descendants are also called Israel and so on. Yeah. Right. When you have David, David is um, where God, God says to him, "Today I have begotten you." Right. But Psalm he's, two. He's yeah. an he's an adult. Yeah. So how was he begotten today? Yeah. Mm. Um, or then God talks to Solomon and says, uh, "I will be your father." you will be my son. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, it's not talking about a biological birth or so, yeah? Right. But that's, it's about a spiritual connection that is there, a covenant relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And so that's how these terms are defined by Scripture itself. Right. And I think all of that provides us with a background when we get to Jesus that kind of, um, while all these individuals um, exemplified, I think, aspects of Christ's... Um, ministry, mm-hmm. his character, his life, but they only did it imperfectly. Mm. Yeah. He is the al- ultimate culmination of all of that. Yeah? Mm. Right. And so then, in Jesus' experience, all of these things are picked up again. Right. He, in Matthew, for example, he is presented as the new Israel. Mm-hmm. And so all of the experiences of the people of Israel reappear in Christ's life. Mm. He's going as a child to Egypt. And right. he's called out of Egypt. Yeah? And that's the Hosea 11, like, yeah, out of Egypt, right. I called my son. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used I used a term earlier, um, Tawhid, in reference to Islam and kind of a more monolithic or, or Unitarian view of God. And I think that, I mean, so you had mentioned in our previous episode that there was tension saying like, oh, you know what's really bad is Unitarianism. And I think that there are ethical implications for that. There's things that we think of about God's character that are maybe affected by whether or not he, in his essence, is a relational being. Can you talk about that a little bit? Mm-hmm. I think uh, that was an aspect that, as uh, when I was younger, wasn't, when I was an entertainerian, I couldn't fully understand. When people said that the fact that the Bible talks about God as love, that God is love, um, that that necessitates that he's a relational being mm-hmm. and that there, in that sense, in this unity, there must be more than just one person. Mm-hmm. For me, it was like, I couldn't grasp that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, I think once I got married and now uh, this summer we got a baby. Yay. <laughs> and uh, so I begin to more and more grasp the idea. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Not that I have arrived, but uh, I'm growing. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And... Um, so I think in that sense, love, unselfish love, cannot exist by itself. Yes, I can be in my office and I can love my books, and uh, but it's pretty selfish. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So I need at least uh, I need one other person mm-hmm. to show that love to, yeah? and to in that sense um, give my attention to that individual and so on. Yeah? But even then, I have the other person has my full attention. I have her full attention. And it can exclude other people. And it's, uh, in that sense, still going like, um, just like, it can still be selfish in that sense that I have the other person's full attention. Yeah? Mm-hmm. If another person is added to the picture, now I have to kind of deny myself to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Because now I no longer have the other person's full attention, but actually I need to share that attention with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And so then, um, yes, I give my attention to um, to Angelica, my wife. Now I give my attention also to uh, Zoe, my daughter. Mm -hmm. But then I see how they interact with each other. And I'm kind of excluded from that. They have a relationship with uh, with one another that I'm not part of. But I'm watching them and just watching how they interact, it increases my love for both of them. Mm -hmm. And I think with this uh, third individual added, mm -hmm. actually another element of unselfishness is added that I didn't have before. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about these things, um, it made me aware that, um, yes, actually, for true unselfish love to other-centered love to exist, mm -hmm. Um, where you don't have this aspect of one tries to dominate the other one or tries to control the other one. Mm -hmm. You need at least three individuals. Right. Mm. Of course, that is kind of like, those are considerations mm. yeah, yeah. Um, that help me. Um, but it's amazing for me to see that in the Bible, I mentioned a couple of um, statements in regards to that. We have a number of statements that show that God ultimately is not somebody who dominates, who controls other ones, but who's a benefactor who always serves, who always uplifts, um, submits. yeah. Mm. And if each person is doing that in that relationship, you have ultimately, you have uh, unity, harmony, you have complete oneness. Mm -hmm. Because it's reciprocal. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what Christ actually wanted for, or what God wanted for the family relationship. Because uh, Adam and Eve, they were supposed to be one. Mm -hmm. yeah. And when they are created, actually, it talks about them as singular and as plural, both. Mm -hmm. yeah? um, and I think that's what also Christ wants for the church, that should, we should be one. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And looking at uh, passages um, in, um, for example, in Galatians, where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, it actually talks about all kinds of things that have to do with our relation to one another. Mm -hmm. Not selfish, but uh, love, peace, uh, of course, peace, we could say, yeah. Sure. But long suffering, yeah. Um, patience, all these are things uh, that ultimately just come really to fruition when I deal with other individuals. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the church, if it truly wants to be a witness in the world, mm -hmm. then this um, spiritual oneness is actually needed where people say, this is unusual. I want this too. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And uh, and I remember that when, when I look at, for example, statements from Ellen White, and I can say that because I'm an Adventist historian. Yeah. Sure. But she talks about, for example, the end time, and she talks about that um, there are kind of different developments in the end time. One is that the gospel is preached in all the world, like Matthew 20, uh, what is it, 24, verse 15. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so the gospel is preached in all the world, but there's a, another development, and that is that evilness and wickedness just increases in the world. Mm -hmm. And we are always behind in preaching the gospel and reaching people uh, for salvation. Yeah. And she says, actually, whatever we do, we will always be behind. However, there is one thing that has the potential to accelerate the gospel proclamation like nothing else can do it. And that is when the fruit of the Spirit, which is the character of Christ, is revealed in the lives of the believers. Mm. So in that sense, the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit of unselfish, other-centered love, which is seen in helping those in need, mm -hmm. which is seen in sharing the gospel with those who need it. Mm -hmm. um, when this Spirit becomes um, alive in the lives of the believers, it will just attract people. 
Mm-hmm. And they will say, I want this too. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it has a evangelistic or missional aspect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, it's not that like that kind of virtue can't emerge out of individuality or isolation. It has yeah. to it has to emerge from within some kind of yeah. community. And I think I guess if we map that onto our thoughts about God too, mm-hmm. that's really I think powerful. And I think uh, even though I wouldn't say that just because somebody has certain ideas that necessarily that impacts his relationships to other people, that he can't be a loving person, can't be a kind person and so on. But uh, ultimately uh, there is a possibility that uh, the view that we have of God mm-hmm has an impact on how we relate to other people. Mm-hmm. And especially when we talk about the relationship between divine uh, persons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if my view of the Father and the Son is an, like a view that uh, here is one who basically says, okay, you will go and die. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other person goes and, and dies. But ultimately the Father sits at home and basically um, he just sent like an inferior, for example. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quite fit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think in that sense that if my view of God is like that, mm-hmm. then it may also well be that my um, marriage relationship, my family relationships, my relationships to other people may be kind of dominated mm. <laughs> yeah. in, in this way that I um, dominate and try to control and manipulate others. Mm-hmm. Wow. Interesting. And I think it's interesting, you know, when you talk about how this view affects other parts of our life. When we're looking at even the big words, sociological implications of the Trinity, which is just as like, what is the plan of salvation? Um, how does the Trinity, the divinity of Christ, the person of the Holy Spirit, how does that affect, uh, you know, the Adventist understanding of soteriology? That's a good, good question. I don't think that I have all the answer to the answers to that. Yeah? Mm-hmm. But I think that uh, what we see is that um, when both in creation as well as in redemption, that all three were involved. Hmm. And that, yes, uh, everybody kind of takes another part. But I think when you have uh, three individuals that are so closely connected, when one suffers, all of them are affected. Hmm. And um, I think that's even more the case when you have three that um, we have reciprocal submission, glorification, Mm -hmm. um, uplifting, and so on, than when, let's say... um, I have somebody who is an inferior or so. Yeah? So I think that's, that's one aspect that is connected to that. Yeah? So that truly here, all three are involved. Sometimes for us, uh, the father is kind of like distant or so. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And then the one who is close is Jesus. Yeah? Mm-hmm. But I think that all are involved. Yeah? All are benefactors in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is one other aspect, at least theologically speaking, that, um, that we are often not aware of, and that is, when we look at the Bible, we have, uh, of course, we have a story, yeah? and uh, because God interacts with human beings throughout history. Mm-hmm. But in this story, we have a progression of um, progressive revelation of, of God. Mm-hmm. And so in the Old Testament, we often think, okay, like there the Father is revealed. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Interestingly, in the New Testament, the New Testament writers quote Old Testament passages and certain incidents, and they say, this was Jesus. Mm-hmm. So then, who is revealed in the Old Testament? It's actually Jesus. Right. But then, in the New Testament, we have Jesus. Yeah? What does Jesus say? What does he do? He points to the Father. Father right. He testifies of the Father. He says, everything I do, everything that you see, is pointing to the Father. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So then, who's revealed? It's actually 
Jesus reveals the Father. Right? Mm -hmm. And then towards the end of his ministry, Jesus says, now uh, I want to point to another one. And he points to the Holy Spirit and testifies of him. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And then in the book of Acts, we say Acts of the Apostles. Yeah, ultimately, it's actually, yeah, you see there are different apostles, they change, but ultimately it's the Holy Spirit who is acting there. Yeah. He's the one who's throughout the whole book appearing there. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And so I think all the divine persons are involved in uh, salvation. Mm -hmm. Now, salvation on one hand is, I think, of course, we kind of break it down theologically and say there's justification, there's sanctification, transformation, and so on. Um, how can somebody who is um, not the author of life, for mm -hmm. example, um, or the person who kind of gave the law, and I think the law ultimately is, is a transcript of God's character, mm -hmm. Now, we are often just focused on the uh, prohibitory side, but I think when you look deeper, you will see that each law actually implies the thought of ultimate other-centered love, mm -hmm. care for the well-being of the other one, yeah? mm -hmm. whether it's the other person's time, reputation, all these things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so even there, kind of this aspect is, is revealed. But um, if somebody who is not equal to that law right. then comes and dies, what does it do for me? Yeah? Mm -hmm. Right. Of course, in these couple of minutes, we can't solve all the questions. Why was it necessary for, for Christ to come and die? Mm -hmm. um, those deal with atonement. Um, I think that uh, John Peckham, probably, he could talk very well about that. Yeah? Right. Um, so I think that's one aspect when it comes to justification, that um, there, it was necessary that somebody who is equal to the law comes and dies. Mm -hmm. yeah? um, because God himself... In that sense was accused and so he himself had to show that he can be just and merciful at the same time mm -hmm. it wasn't enough for somebody else to come yeah? the other aspect is when it comes to sanctification uh, i think that ultimately it's only possible or um, it's not just um, a static thing you get it you have it yeah it's mm -hmm. something that is growing yeah? mm -hmm. and continues to grow mm -hmm. that we grow in appreciation for um and love for god and for the neighbor yeah but I think another aspect is also that um, it's only through relationship with God that we are changed. But in what image are we changed? In the one that we behold. And so um, I may believe certain things and have certain ideas, but if my interactions with other people are actually distorting the image of God, mm. distorting the character of God, mm. representing, uh, misrepresenting him, then um, yeah, I wonder if if I truly have um, experienced a conversion where the Holy Spirit is really active in my life. Mm. Not that I, sh let's say, that I'm perfect or that I don't uh, do things that are stupid anymore or so, not because I want or so, but just because I may do things, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think that, uh, that the experience of a true Christian should be characterized by, um, not just by actions, but a spirit mm -hmm. that uh, reflects the, the character of God. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I guess we we did kind of cover the idea that there's like salvific definitely implications mm -hmm. to this. Kind of like there's a sense where like Jesus, can he fulfill his mediatorial role mm -hmm. if he's not able to kind of bridge both sides? Um, and I think that that discussion of like how far down did the Savior come and stuff, yeah. that has definitely figured largely into our Christological, soteriological conversations. Um, I would actually like to ask, 
Are there any like nat? Because we were already on the sanctification topic. Mm-hmm. So, are there any natural affinities between, say, last generation theology and anti-trinitarianism within the Adventist context, or am I just constructing that? Is that just an accidental thing? Is that it's a happenstance? It could be there, or it might not be. Like, it. What What would you say about that? I think there might be some connections. Okay. Um, I don't think that they are necessarily there, and that everybody who, let's say. Um, believes, for example, in, um, and emphasizes the the fallen, sinful human nature of Christ mm-hmm. um, necessarily then is, um, believes in last-generation theology in its classic form or so, yeah, and sure. therefore must be an anti-Trinitarian. I don't think that you can make that, um, let's say, that connection that necessarily leads there. Sure. However, often we find that these different elements go together. Mm-hmm. Um, at least, let's say, somebody who um, affirms last-generation theology usually also affirms the fallen sinful human nature of Christ. Right. And that he had to be like us in, in almost every respect except that he didn't sin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to um, people who advocate um, anti-Trinitarian ideas, often they also uh, affirm last generation theology and often they affirm the fallen sin- sinful human nature of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, on one hand, of course, we could say, yeah, it's maybe it's because um, these ideas are usually found in more conservative Adventist circles, mm-hmm. and so that's why uh, it just kind of um, there, like there's a, um, it's not necessarily causated, but uh, there's a like, correlation. correlation there. Or so, sure. Um, yeah. Um, on the other hand, uh, there are certain elements that kind of um, are similar, and that is, um, on one hand, uh, when it comes to let's say last generation theology, we often make Christ kind of. Uh, very similar to us mm-hmm. so that we can kind of uh, do the same thing that he did. Right. right. Imitation. So we kind of bring him more down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then actually what we can do is is more. Mm-hmm. Yeah? On the other hand, when you look at Antonitarianism, it's kind of similar that also there we kind of bring Jesus down right. almost to our level. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And um, so I don't know that necessarily they are like there's a causal effect, sure. but at least often it goes together. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And at least for for those who are anti Trinitarians, often there there's a connection there. Right, an affinity, not necessary. It's not necessity yeah. per yeah. se. Yeah. Right. This has been a really interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. I think understanding the divinity of Christ uh, mingled with his humanity, the the personhood and agency of the Holy Spirit. These are topics that you know, can fill pages and pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're trying to tackle in a short period of time. Is there anything that you would want to leave our audience that you would want them to know about uh, Trinitarianism, this book that you're writing, uh, you know, historically within Adventism that you'd like to leave us with today? I think one one aspect um, that is very dear to me is that we should go back to Scripture mm-hmm. and not just treat Scripture as um, as a book where we can get let's say, arguments, weapons, yeah, to support certain ideas that we have, but that we actually read Scripture as a book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, Scripture, the Bible, is, is different than any other book. Right. But then there are also similarities, yeah, because when you look at the Bible, you see that 50% of the Bible is, is stories, mm-hmm. narratives, history, yeah? and we see how God works in human lives. Then the rest of Scripture is uh, prophetic texts, uh, we have uh, poetic texts, we have legal texts, we have uh, epistles, yeah? Mm -hmm. But all of these also usually either speak into real-life situations 
or they talk about how God has acted in human lives or will act in human lives, mm-hmm. um, how we should live, like legal texts, yeah, and also uh, poetic texts. Often it's like how to live a, a, a wise life in connection with God and so on. So actually scripture in and of itself is not just about theology. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a lot about how we live mm-hmm. with God. And so it's very practical in that sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think sometimes we lose sight of um, this practical nature and just discuss particulars uh, and yeah. tiny uh, like nuances just, yeah. and so on, or like details and so right. on. And all of that is, is good and important. But if then the real life connection with God, where we are changed actually, let's say, into the image of Christ, into his character, mm-hmm. is missing, then, then it's futile what we do there. Yeah? Right. Wow. Uh, I think the other thing is that um, when we just kind of take scripture and pick and choose passages here and there, there's a tendency that we interpret those, let's say, terms and statements through our common life experience. Mm-hmm. And then we make God like we are. Right. Now, when I look at the, at the Bible as a story and I read it, mm-hmm. and I look, let's say, for repetitions and structures and illusions and these kinds of things, um, I may become aware of patterns in those passages that I wasn't aware of before, mm-hmm. of insights that are there or like things that come out in these texts where I read or read texts for their own sake, not just because I want to find an argument. Right. Discovering things for ourselves, I think, is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When we do that, I think we begin to understand God on his own terms, right? how he wants to be seen, and we see how he progressively revealed himself. Mm-hmm. And I think it helps us not to, let's say, define certain terms through our common life experience, mm-hmm. but th- um, through the way how scripture itself defines those terms. Yeah? Right. I think when we do that, we actually, it's a fascinating experience. Mm-hmm. And um, allowing people to discover things for themselves I think is also fascinating. Yeah. And it's active learning, not just passive. Yeah? Right, right, right. Where you give something to somebody else and then um, the person says, thank you, but actually has never struggled through through this by himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's one other aspect, and that is, I don't want to dump, let's say, systematic theology. Yeah? Sure. I think it has its place. Um, when we have looked at scripture um, for its own sake, like the internal structures and these kinds of things, mm-hmm. then you can take different passages, build it together, um, being aware how it's kind of um, pr- progressing throughout scripture. Mm-hmm. If I take that and give that to somebody, I may have had the experience of discovering it for myself. I am aware of the narrative and the worldview that is there. Mm-hmm. When somebody else takes it, it may still give the impression that, uh, I mean, that person may still not know how it came about and it's still kind of like, okay, we have texts from here and there and then it's just passive mm-hmm. and it may still look like um, it's just picking and choosing. So I yeah. think we need to be very careful how, how we do that, how we um, teach people how to read the Bible. Mm. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening in. Again, if you'd like to find out additional information on today's topic, you can read more on the Digital Commons at Andrews University, where there are numerous articles written by our guest today, Dr. Dennis Kaiser. We'd like to take this time to thank the Adventist learning community for making this program possible, and thank you for taking the time to listen in. 
If you have a question or comment about today's program, please follow our Instagram or YouTube page at AdventNext. See you next week.